Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are of the generous sort, you can be like Jody, Jerry, Garrett, John, Ben, and Janet, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store, if you feel inclined, so check it out. Our guest today is Zach Jones. Zach is a master's student in the Trophic Ecology Fisk Lab at the University of Windsor, co-supervised by Dr. Aaron Fisk and Dr. Bailey McMeans. Zach's research focuses on understanding the impacts of winter duration on feeding and movement ecology of smallmouth bass. Prior to graduate school, Zach completed his BSc in Biological Sciences with a philosophy minor at the University of Guelph. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks so much for having me on here. It's an honor. Starting off with a relatively simple question that I always like to say I ask each of my guests. Have you always had an interest in fisheries, whether it be from a recreational angling perspective or a research perspective, maybe both? I would say, yes, I've always had the interest. I mean, growing up, I did have the opportunities to engage in fishing and in whatever way I got the opportunity, I was totally seizing it. But I would say it was more so just a gradual narrowing in on the fisheries research. During my my studies doing science, I was generally just studying biological science because I just had this relentless curiosity to understand everything and how it all works. And, you know, over time, I realized I could just narrow in on what I was really interested in. So eventually it became, you know, ecology is what I'm really fascinated in. And then it was time to get a little more specific. So I was fascinated with food webs and how they work. And it became time to sort of apply that into a certain system. And aquatic systems to me were really fascinating especially the role that fish play in regulating those food webs. So as, as soon as I got the opportunity to be engaged in that during my undergrad, I was all over it. Nice. Let's talk about your fisheries research journey so far. As I mentioned, you completed your undergraduate degree in biological science at the University of Guelph. Interestingly, this is something I don't encounter often in the world of fisheries, in addition to looking at biological sciences, you also completed a minor in philosophy. How did you envision that portion of your degree fitting in with the sciences component? That's a big question. I mean, I, I'm really glad that I did that philosophy minor. It was really incredibly valuable just for developing a thought process that really complements the science. So the way I think about it is think about the bigger picture of research. So science sort of blends into philosophy eventually. You need science to do philosophy and you need philosophy to do science just to guide you in those both directions. I mean, you think about it, you know, as fishery scientists, we might make arguments or make statements that say something like biodiversity is important. And usually we don't have to go any further than to say that in itself. But sometimes it is good to think about where that goes in a philosophical sense. You're thinking about well, eventually, if you have to answer questions like, why is biodiversity important? You have to answer questions like, what are humans without nature? And so 
it's, it's always just good to be thinking about what those answers are to those questions. It would be funny if a committee member were to ask you the question, why is biodiversity important? And you maybe hadn't thought about the answer because it's always good to think about those answers. Why is biodiversity important? And so it just creates a more complete argument and it just shows that you, you really thought this through head to toe. And so that's one of the benefits. Now, there's a little more. I mean, I try to think about these things a lot more and I even try to write about it a little bit just because it does help with your writing skills. I mean, when you're a scientist, you have to develop these arguments and organize your thoughts in the most concise and clear way possible oftentimes. And so with that philosophy background, it, it became a lot easier to develop that writing process and complete those thoughts. And then the last thing I would say is that critical thinking is a huge asset out of that philosophy of way of thinking. So I really value like the idea of bringing in different perspectives and really challenging your own perspectives. And in ecology and in fisheries research, that becomes a huge asset. I mean, even in this field, it's really important to consider perspectives like traditional ecological knowledge and how that can complement the science. To me, that's that philosophy background has really opened me up to how how valuable that can be. That's a great response. Gives us a lot to think about. In your last year of study, you completed an undergraduate thesis. What was the topic of your research? The topic, I guess I'll just say flat out front that it was uh, looking at this concept of habitat coupling. That's these fish in Perry Sound, where we were looking, have the ability to feed between the near shore and offshore habitat. So we were looking at which fish might have the ability to do so and at different times of the year. And so that opportunity arose out of uh, this summer research position that I had with uh, Neil Rooney in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph. During that time, I was doing some field work and just engaging with that was getting me thinking about some of these ideas and then also just getting to read papers and play around with some data. I was playing around with this data, this we call it stabilized topes. And so it's just this idea that we have these this ratio of heavy to light isotopes. We take samples of fish tissue and we run it through a mass spectrometry. It tells us the ratio of these heavy to light isotopes for a given element. That's actually informative for the food web in a couple of ways. So we talk about two isotopes in particular. The first is the delta 13C carbon isotope. And that one is has the ability to s- distinguish between the near shore habitat energy channel, that food web, and the offshore pelagic energy channel. The fish that have the ability to feed between those two habitats would sit, might sit somewhere in between those two values, what we define as pelagic and littoral. I was playing around with that. And then we also had the delta 15N isotope, so the nitrogen. And that one accumulates as it moves up the food chain. So it tells you sort of the tropic position if you're looking at the fish. We had collected walleye yellow perch and smallmouth bass during that for a couple of years. I was playing around with that data and I noticed that some of these fish that are sort of left out of the habitat coupling framework were starting to demonstrate habitat couplings. Lake trout are known as habitat couplers and that's because they're cold water fish. They have that ability to sort of jump between the habitats depending on the time of the year and feed between them. Walleye also have been accepted as a habitat coupler, but it hadn't really been looked at in some of these smaller fish like yellow perch and hadn't really been looked at in warm water fish because we think they're generally restricted to the nearshore habitat. With this data, I started to 
investigate that idea that maybe these yellow perch and smallmouth bass have the ability to feed between littoral and pelagic food webs. And it turns out well, what the data was suggesting was that at different times of the year, so late October is when these yellow perch were predominantly had signatures that reflected pelagic waters. And it seemed like the, the bass were doing a little bit of the same at that time of the year. We had some problems with the data just because it was collected in 2017, not specifically for this purpose. But the way I see it is that it's problems that have turned into opportunity. I mean, it's stuff that we're sort of trying to work on in our lab at University of Windsor now with some of these problems with the stable isotope data. And for any of you who work with stable isotopes, you'll know that baselines are a major issue. So when I talk about representing that pelagic and littoral habitat, we need to use primary consumers to tell us what those are defined as, but those are often very troublesome. So we're, we're trying to work around some of those issues. And now I'm engaged in that through my experience in that undergrad. And there's a couple other things. I still want to keep working on that habitat coupling concept because I think there's some promising work to be done there. Tell us a bit more about Perry Sound and the field work that was done to collect the data you used. Data I was working with specifically was from like 2017. So I was just just in high school at that time. But I did get to continue on. That work's continued on for years. And so I got to do that during that summer. It's wonderful. I love it up there. It's just that Georgian Bay Reserve is just great. Perry Sound is such a complex ecosystem within Georgian Bay. It's got, you know, a sort of unique food web because Georgian Bay typically doesn't have the pelagic forage fish like Cisco, but uh, Perry Sound is host to that. And there's also an interesting sort of thing going on there with the aquaculture operations. So they farm rainbow trout in, in the Sound there. That's created some interesting opportunities for research because I didn't mention this as another part of that, how it was influencing our data, but it's been shown from previous work in the McCann lab and Nivaruni that food and waste that makes it through that aquaculture, those nets can actually assimilate into the ecosystem and fish in particular seem to be very responsive to that. And I think it's the Cisco that are really drawn towards that, what we call a subsidy and a subsidy to the food web. And so it's, we call it like the bird feeder effect. They can draw the ecosystem towards it. Um, that actually was part of the reason why we could have seen the influence in our isotope signatures that we did. Still a lot more thinking to be done about that, a lot more work to be done. After graduating from Guelph University, you moved on to graduate school. You are currently working on your master's at the University of Windsor. I mentioned your research involves studying smallmouth bass, but to set the stage, tell us about where your research is taking place. Yeah, so I think this is close to home for you from what I know about you is that uh, you have the same wonderful study system. And so that's that's within Algonquin Park. And specifically, my projects in Smoke Lake, so it's just on Highway 60. I'm just so grateful to be working up there. It's a great, great. I, that was actually part of my, my mission when I was trying to develop a research project was priority was that if it can be in Algonquin, let's make it happen. <laughs> I completely agree. Algonquin Park is beautiful. There's nothing like it. Tell us a bit more about Smoke Lake. Is it large lake, small? Are there many fish species to be found there? It's about 660 hectares, so it's about medium-sized for what we see in the Boreal Lakes or in Algonquin Park, but relatively smaller. 
it's a little bit deeper. I mean, I think it's max depth is around 60 meters. And so it does have a lot of complexity with, again, those two food webs. So we do have lots of lake trout. We have pelagic forage fish. There's burbot, there's white sucker, there's smallmouth bass, and a lot of those prefish, cyprinids, yellow perch, if I didn't mention them. It's really cool. It's like we were netting in Smoke Lake for, for our project and just seeing the diversity and just like all that's going on in there. It's, it's a really cool system. That must be super interesting to see, especially because your field work is so remote. Let's dive into your research project. What are the main objectives? The project is based around this concept of smallmouth bass becoming invasive to northern latitudes in the, in the boreal region of Canada. That's driven because of climate change, or at least we think so. We know that smallmouth bass young of year tend to survive through shorter winters better than longer winters, but it's a little less known how the adult fish performance is affected by shorter winters. And so uh, this project wants to undertake a comprehensive overview of how smallmouth bass are changing their behaviors in order to benefit their population performance. How are you assessing behavioral changes in these adult smallmouth bass? They undergo this behavior called overwintering. And so that's expected to be very temperature driven. And by overwintering, I mean, they descend down to this deep depth and they don't really do a whole lot of much. As far as we're concerned, they're not foraging or anything. So it's it's like hibernating, but not completely shutting down. To measure that and to, to learn about what's going on there, I like to say that the best thing we can always do if we want to learn about anyone or anything is to listen to them. By that, I mean, we're not breaking any language barrier with fish or anything, but we are we are using sound waves. And so that's through this uh, technique that we call acoustic telemetry. And so acoustic telemetry is this idea of you take this little tag, which looks like a little battery, and you surgically implant it into the body cavity of the fish. You let them recover, you release them back into the water, and then that little tag inside them sends out this acoustic sound wave throughout the water. And that's waiting to be picked up by these sound listening stations that we call receivers. Every time that a receiver detects a sound wave that originated from a fish, it timestamps it, it tells you any information that it any data that it's relaying. In the case of Smoke Lake, that can be things like the depth the fish is at, the presence of it, and the acceleration. But then, well, actually, this is an amazing bonus with, and I'm I'm really fortunate to be able to work with this uh, study system because we have so many, we have 86 receivers in Smoke Lake. And so that means that there's a lot of receivers picking up the same sound wave. And when that happens, and places like in the Great Lakes or in the ocean, it's not really, there's not this density of receivers to do so, but we have the ability to actually detect the exact position of these fish at a given time. So that's based on the the difference of time that it takes to reach the different receivers. So as long as it reaches three or more receivers, then you can triangulate the exact position of the fish. And so that's like incredible data. So we, we're collecting that like 24-7 continuously. That allows us to track movement activities with several different metrics. There's different ways we can go about it. We can look at distance over time to get velocity, and that's a movement metric. We can look at acceleration, and that's based off of these accelerometer tags that give off. It's based off of tailbeat frequency. And then there's some other things that we can use to look at 
again, movement activity. And then we have that depth so that can reflect when they initiate overwintering behavior. So that's the first thing we're doing to look at how they respond to shorter or longer winters because we have three years of data. And so hopefully those years will vary in the timing that thermal stratification dissolves and then reforms again. Then the second part is to connect that to the feeding ecology. So I'm glad I explained the stable isotopes already because that's that's a big one to to talk about. So we're just trying to see what, what we can resolve in terms of uh, how their feeding patterns change in those shorter and longer years. Are they feeding differently on different prey items and different habitats? And one thing I didn't mention about the nitrogen isotope is that it also can tell you if fish is in a state of starvation or if they're fed because uh, when they're starving, they have to metabolize their nitrogen tissue. And so it's easier to, to use the lighter nitrogen um, isotope because those bonds are easier to break. So if they're starved, then they should have higher levels of nitrogen delta 15N signatures. So that's one thing. And then we have a whole bunch of other metrics we can look at, carbon to nitrogen ratios, body condition, somatic indices to look at just the condition of the fish. And then we also are taking like lipid levels of their liver and muscle tissue to see as they come out of winter, are they more depleted in their fat stores um, because of the stress of winter? And they also are preparing for spawning. So that's that's another factor we have to take into account. You mentioned you have three years of data collected. When did the fieldwork for this study start? That was in 2021 when they started to tag these small bass and put in the receivers and they tagged uh, other fish too, like the lake trout and burbot. And now they've added white sucker. So uh, yeah, there's some amazing data there. But so we have three winters from 2021 to 2022, 2022 to 2023, and yeah, 2023 to 2024. So, and that one's coming up. Right. And what does a typical day in the field look like for you? It can depend on what tasks we have to do. I mean, hopefully there'll be opportunities to help out with downloading the receivers. So they collect all that data and then we have to actually grab those receivers out of the water, which is like two meters down. Also, we could be having to collect some samples of fish. So that it could include, and people always get so envious when I tell them this, but it could just include angling, especially in the case of smallmouth bass. That's, yeah, that's my job. Um, is getting to to angle for these fish. And then um, in this past summer, we were also netting, so using gill nets. So we were collecting the lake trout, burbets, whitefish, and some of these other species too. So uh, the netting is part of it. And then some of these other little things like collecting invertebrates to, and primary consumers' mussels and collecting prey fish just to get a, a more holistic view of what the food web's like there and just to support other projects going on because there's a lot of good data in this study system. I understand people being envious when you say that your job is angling because I do the same thing. Currently, how many fish do you have tagged? Uh, for the smallmouth bass in Smoke Lake, there was 20, but so it's actually interesting because Smoke Lake is part of a three lake system. Uh, there's a smaller lake that connects to it called Tea Lake, and then there's another lake, a slightly bigger one is Canoe Lake. Other projects are, there's a lot of opportunities to look at projects with how they migrate through those systems. And so uh, they've slowly added 
some more fish to those lakes. So they, they may have tagged fish in T Lake, but they, and they could move between the systems. So by now, uh, the exact numbers, I'm, I have to double check because this is again, new to, I'm still uh, just in the first couple months of my project, but I think it's around like 40, 50. I'm going to say there's at least 30 smallmouth bass to work with, if not more. Right. That's a good number, especially because, as you mentioned, you're only in your first few months of your degree. Let's dive into the winter ecology portion of your research, because that's what it's focused on. What is the significance of winter on the ecosystem structure? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's what I'm fascinated about as fish behavioral ecologist is just how they're the fish and different fish are dynamic in their responses to changing conditions, especially temperature. So you think of the gradient of thermal preferences that exist within the fish community in something like the Algonquin Park. So you have like the, the lake trout that are cold water predators and you have the smallmouth bass that are warm water fish and then you have some in between. You know, different times of the year can be perhaps more beneficial for some of those fish like the, the smallmouth bass. As warm water fish, they seem to improve their energy acquisition during the period of time where there's thermal stratification. They can take advantage of that and forage as much as possible. Whereas the lake trout, wherever there's thermal stratification, they don't they tend not to access those areas for feeding. And so they're restricted to the offshore. And so that's work that's been shown and done. But when winters get longer or shorter, there might be a couple extra days they call it like bonus time where maybe the bass have a couple extra uh, days to forage. And so that could be beneficial if it's just before winter, they could be fattening up just a little bit to make it through the winter and have better reproductive effort when they're spawning in the spring. Also, if the thermal stratification dissolves a little bit earlier uh, in the spring, then that same phenomenon could be happening. And so that's what we want to look at. And then hopefully connect that to what that means for the things like coexistence with the cold water fish. And if climate change is to shorten winters, how is that going to change the balance of the scales so that we can allow for the cold water fish to benefit at some times of the year and then the warm water fish to benefit other times of the year? That's certainly an important topic, thinking about the impacts of climate change on whole ecosystem dynamics. What do you expect the smallmouth bass to do in terms of changing their behavior based on winter duration? So what we expect is, I, I mentioned that that bonus time. So let's say, you know, in one year versus another, there's maybe just a couple days, two, three days of thermal stratification. So that means that there's that warm temperature at the top column of the water. Uh, what we expect is that smallmouth bass, because they're ectothermic, they're going to take advantage of that. and they'll use that as an opportunity to forage more. And so that's where we expect them to potentially fatten up a little bit more, and that's going to improve their performance ultimately. And would you expect them then to occupy shallower waters for those extra bonus days? Actually, that's really interesting. So we have been thinking about that a lot in in the McMeans lab and actually during my work with the undergrad project with that habitat coupling and uh, we're, we're thinking about it a lot because, and we've been talking to like even local fishermen and others that have told us that they're catching these bass in the offshore 
during the summer. And that sort of coincides with what we could expect. I mean, we want it, it hasn't really been shown yet, but we think that smallmouth bass are opportunistic if there is uh, reason like prey abundances to be drawn towards that offshore habitat that they will. And we just started to look at this and this is work being done in the McMeans lab that was just looking at this data that we have in Smoke Lake. And we actually see that uh, they have this pattern where they they seem to be moving out into the offshore habitat uh, during the day and then they make their way back into the near shore. And so that could affect their feeding patterns that they might they might take advantage of that offshore feeding a little bit more if we have a couple extra days of thermal stratification. We've talked about winter duration, but how are you actually measuring winter? I appreciate you asking these questions so that I can clarify some of those details because sometimes I miss them. But uh, we're using these temperature strings. So they record temperature at all different depths. So they go from like two meters to 35 meters and there's a whole bunch in between. And so we see how thermal stratification is formed and then how it dissolves over time. And you can see very clearly there's a time where the, like when you're talking about fall cooling, that it condenses into one temperature throughout the water column and then starts to turn into ice. And then again, uh, we see it start to break off from that defined temperature. It's like typically within one degree Celsius, the whole water column is the same. We call it isothermic. And then, yeah, that thermal stratification will form again out of that. So that temperature string allows us to quantify uh, the timing of those events. And then in between that is what we define as winter. What do you expect to be the broad scale implications of your research project? Well, I think being able to identify how these smallmouth bass are responsive to shortening winters is going to allow for us to predict how they're going to respond to climate change. And so, again, I talked about at the beginning, we're worried about their invasion northwards. And so we expect that the winters are going to go shorter within a region. And especially as you move up in latitudes, winters are going to get shorter and shorter. We think that that's going to relieve the barrier for smallmouth bass distribution to the north. So it will allow us to ultimately predict if they're going to be able to expand their range northwards and then also have some insight on what that's going to mean for the native ecosystem there if they're going to disrupt maybe say the the lake the lake trout and the cold water fish that live up there by creating a more competitive stress onto those those native fish species well zach now that the tough part of the interview is over you're down to the final five questions this is a group of five questions that i ask each of the guests that come on the show we always start simple with, what is your favorite fish? Yeah, so for that answer, I've got to choose something that's close to home for me. So I'm going to choose the lake trout. I think they're just, because they're a native species to the lakes that I work with, and uh, they've been shown to be such a like keystone top predator to the ecosystem, and they're beautiful. I mean, you look at the patterns on them with their spots. I think they're just incredible species. Uh, they have fascinating behaviors. We talked about habitat coupling and other things, so they're just... They really do fascinate me and they're beautiful. So I love them. What is your favorite memory from your career so far? I think that would go back to when I first got to do field work up in Algonquin Park. So I was just an undergrad and I was all over it, but we got a really cool opportunity. Uh, I was working with the McCann lab at the University of Guelph and we were, I was helping out with a study to look at cyprinid migration through streams. 
And we were using a weir to capture these fish and we were just processing a bunch of them. And I was just um, handling like, like hundreds of fish uh, each day. And it was just so cool to see the diversity of all these cyprinid species and yellow perch and all these other fish, um, just being able to, to appreciate just how complex these stream ecosystems were. So I remember that was what really confirmed that this is, this is a pathway I'm going to be pursuing, especially with the field work involved. What is your dream job or location? That's a tough one. I, I guess that maybe at this point I'm thinking about it a lot, so I won't necessarily settle on anything, but I will say there's certain certain boxes that I want to check off for a dream job. I always like to maintain like a global perspective on things like resource management and sustainability. Uh, I also want to use some of the skills that I think I'm developing now that are going to make me an asset to this field of, of work. And that would be, you know, writing and I think uh, connecting with people. I'd also want to involve field work in that dream job and also just uh, centered around the idea of the importance of protecting um, our ecosystems. So as long as it checks those boxes, I think that's my dream job. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? Interestingly enough, this is actually just starting to be developed this research project that I've been wanting, I've been thinking about. So when I was talking about the Perry Sound habitat coupling, the best way to complement the the stable isotopes. And so I'd want to go out and actually like collect the stable isotopes for testing the theory of habitat coupling at different times of the year. But I'd want to match that with acoustic telemetry. And because that would tell you if they really are moving into the offshore habitat and feeding there. So that actually, I think, is just starting to get implemented where they're going to have acoustic telemetry in Perry Sounds. That would be really interesting to look at, not only for the habitat coupling thing that I was interested in, but also how we can further look at how the aquaculture affects the movement patterns of these fish, if it really is drawing some of them towards the the net pens. I would really want to look at those questions. And If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? I would say uh, it's important just to maintain a deep connection with our natural world. I think as humans, we're incredibly important and we play an important role in the global ecosystem. And the best thing we can do is just to recognize that role and play that role. I think hopefully we'll find some inner peace from that. Zach, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure hearing about you and all of your work. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, how would they do that? I've just started to use Twitter slash X because it's a good resource for academics. So you can find me at Zach, Z-A-C-H-D, Jones 11. Uh, maybe I'll put my LinkedIn in the show notes there too, um, just as another option. If you would like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts, hoodies, and stickers available on Teespring. I'm Caitlin Cunningham. Thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, it's important to maintain a relationship with our natural world. 